The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Great words for that song. Story of a sinner becoming a saint through the power of God's glorious gospel. And that is what we're going to look at together in the book of Acts. So I'd invite you to turn to Acts chapter 9. And while you are turning there, I'm going to go ahead and release the children for Children's Church. So if you are in fifth grade on down, follow the leader. Go ahead and meet in the back of the lobby there. If you have a Bible, you can bring that. And teacher Rebecca today will be your teacher. Have a great time. Look forward to see what you're learning from God's Word. The rest of us, we're going to go ahead and open Acts chapter 9. As we continue our study in the book of Acts, we'll go through the first 18 verses of this wonderful chapter, the book of Acts, true historical book documenting the Lord Jesus Christ as he lays the foundation of his church just after his resurrection, commissioning his 12 apostles. And then he ascends into heaven and he gave them the great commission. And we saw that in Acts chapter 1. He said, wait for the Holy Spirit who will empower you. And at that time, you will be my witnesses starting right here in your own backyard in Jerusalem and in all of Judea, the surrounding area, and then into Samaria, the next region over, and then even to the uttermost parts of the earth, the ends of the earth. And so uh, that's kind of the outline of the book of Acts and also of the history of the church. It started in Jerusalem. The apostles were effective. God blessed. Uh, the gospel exploded. The church grew to thousands. It began to spread and trickle over even into the borders beyond Judea, even into Samaria. And within the first couple of months, the, the church of Jesus Christ became a mega church. And also, it had rising resistance and persecution. And that's where we pick up now in the book of Acts. As God is fulfilling his commission himself, where he told the apostles, take the gospel beyond Jerusalem to the uttermost parts of the world. It's not just for Jews here in this cul-de-sac. The gospel is for the entire world. God so loved the world, says the gospel of John. And so... God is actually providentially making sure that the gospel goes to the uttermost parts of the earth and he'll use whatever means he desires, whether it's the apostles preaching or even those trying to stop Christianity through persecution, which we saw happen as Stephen was arrested and then murdered. And then Saul, an opponent of the Christian faith, began putting Christians in jail and his goal was to shut Christianity down, literally to smother it and snuff it into non-existence. And so many of these Christians escaped Jerusalem, fleeing for their lives, spreading out virtually in the, all over the then-known world, and God was using that to spread the seeds of the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. And we're going to see that even today where God calls and saves someone that's going to eventually lead them to up north of Jerusalem in a country and region that we know as Syria, which is familiar to us today. So let's go ahead and look at it. Uh, the title of today's sermon I put there, From Saul to Paul. From Saul to Paul. And we'll look at the first 18 verses of chapter 9. I broke it up in just four points there. As we go through this narrative, it's a story. And so there's just kind of the high points as we go through. The high points that I want to acknowledge is starting with the hostility that's point number one from Saul, and then the humbling, and then the help, and then the healing. So that's where we're headed with this amazing 
transforming story. Just to show you where and remind you, maybe you haven't been with us, just to orient you to where we are in the book of Acts here, is in chapter 8, 9, and 10. Actually, chapters 1 through 7, God was giving a micro or a macro picture of what's going on in the entire church, corporately and abroad. And it seems like now Luke, who is the author, zeroes in on a macro level and highlights individual salvations in chapters 8, 9, and 10. First was the actually quasi-false salvation of a man named Simon. We saw that in the beginning of chapter 8, Simon Magus, who heard the gospel, professed to believe in the gospel, got baptized. Many thought he was a Christian. It turns out he was a phony. Then right after that, we saw last week at the end of chapter 8, the conversion of an Ethiopian eunuch from down south of Egypt and how he got saved. So there was a conversion of one man, an Ethiopian eunuch, and now we're going to see the conversion of one man, a man named Saul. And then in chapter 10, we're going to be introduced to another personal conversion story of a man named Cornelius. So now Luke is showing us the power of the gospel, not just corporately, but also in the lives of individual souls who who vary greatly, these individuals. Think about the Ethiopian eunuch. He was not like Saul at all. The Ethiopian eunuch we saw last week, he was a humble man already before he got saved. God had been working on his heart. He was a seeking man. He was. He was seeking truth, seeking God. He was a worshiper of God, the Scripture said. He was teachable. He was sensitive to the things of God. He was reading his Old Testament Scriptures. He was inquiring and he truly wanted to know the truth. Who is this that the prophet speaks of in Isaiah 53? So his heart had been prepared and warmed and he was being drawn by the Spirit. Very different than what we're going to see today, Saul and his conversion story. And Saul is very different than Cornelius that we'll see in the next chapter, in chapter 10, where chapter 10 calls Cornelius a devout man. Again, uh, the Spirit of God is working on his heart, preparing him for salvation. He is open to the gospel. He welcomes the name of the Lord Jesus Christ without resistance, totally unlike this man in Acts chapter 9. Saul. What we've seen of Saul thus far in the book of Acts, at the end of chapter 7, he's introduced at the trial of Stephen. Saul is called a young man. He's a rising star in the ranks. He's probably a rabbi at this time. He probably just joined the Sanhedrin there in Jerusalem. He was a student of Gamaliel, the most respected rabbi in that day. His temperament, very different than Gamaliel. Gamaliel seemed to be a man of temperance and and moderation and, and resisted doing reactionary uh, actions towards this movement called the Christian church, and he called for a sober-minded response to it, very different than Saul, his protege, whom he was training. Saul is a fiery young man. He is filled with passion. He says in Philippians he was filled with zeal. Zeal means boiling hot, and he was. He was boiling hot in his temperament, He was boiling hot in his devotion to the God, at least the God in whom he thought he was serving. He he had a brilliant scholarly mind. That's why he rose in the ranks as a very intelligent, sharp-minded young man committed to his studies, born and raised in a Jewish and Hebrew home. This is Saul. In his testimony throughout the book of Acts, he lets us know that he was born in the city of 
Tarsus, which is up actually in Turkey, north of the Promised Land. And that city of Tarsus was right on the Mediterranean Sea. It was a prominent city, an educated city, a popular city. And so Paul had all the privileges that came with being a citizen of that city. And Tarsus being raised basically in a Hellenized Greek culture and had at his disposal Greek education, which he took full advantage of. At a young age, according to his testimony, his parents sent him to Jerusalem where he was raised, meaning he spent many years as a young man, maybe around age 12 or 13, as young Jews were. At that time, as he was seen as a young man to study in the synagogue and to study under uh, an appointed rabbi, and we know that that was Gamaliel, and there he studied the Hebrew Scriptures, and he studied Jewish law, and he studied the Mishnah, and all that had been passed down in terms of its interpretations, and he was an accomplished student and eventually became an accomplished, recognized scholar as he grew up in Jerusalem. Probably after finishing his studies in Jerusalem, he went back to his hometown up north to Tarsus and stayed there until he got to a point where maybe he was considered to be qualified to be joining the Sanhedrin. And it could very well be that this time, during the time where Stephen was arrested and the church began, that, Paul, that Saul was called down by the leadership of the Sanhedrin to join the Sanhedrin. And even though he was raised and educated in Jerusalem, we don't know how many years he was there, apparently Saul was never exposed to the person or the teaching of Jesus Christ when he was in Jerusalem. Jesus only spoke for and taught publicly for three years. And so it was that window of time that apparently Saul probably missed. He never says that he saw Jesus Christ on earth during his days. Just missed him. And so Paul or Saul comes to Jerusalem, the headquarters of the Judaistic religion, reaching his ultimate goal to be a rabbi, to be in the Sanhedrin. And now with his great zeal and passion and hatred for Christianity, which was a nemesis and a threat to true Jewish religion according to the Sanhedrin and those who killed Jesus, Saul rises to the top. And Caiaphas, the conniving man that he was, and the other high priests who ruled with him, took advantage of Saul's zeal, passion, courage, lack of fear, violence, aggression, brilliant intellect, to use him to help shut down Christianity. And we're going to see that in this passage today. And so that is Saul. Saul was proud at one time of his heritage, the fact that he was, as he says in Philippians, he was born from the tribe of Benjamin. There were 12 tribes, and Benjamin was a prestigious one. And his name, Saul, that was the first king of Israel. So he took great pride in that before he got saved in terms of his identity, his heritage, his training, trained in Greek, trained in Hebrew. Great passion. And right now, hatred towards Christianity. Let's go ahead and pick up on a point number one, the hostility. The hostility. Saul breathing threats. Verses one. And two, we just come off of a, a highlight of the Ethiopian eunuch being saved and a, a miraculous work of God, but it doesn't stop there. God's work continues despite persecution and resistance. And we see that here with Saul. 
The last time we saw Saul, he just approved the murder of Stephen and was now going house to house all throughout Jerusalem trying to find Christians, dragging them out by their hair, men and women alike, throwing them into prison and approving of their death. That was the last time we saw Saul. Saul was vicious. So let's look at verses 1 and 2. As it introduces Saul, the hostility continues. Now Saul, still breathing threats, not breathing out threats, breathing in threats. That's what the word means. He lived off of it. It speaks of his nature. Breathing in threats. It was his, his very thought life and his food and the breath of his life. Was, he was just focused and engaged on one thing. And that is stamping out Christianity, arresting Christians, and murdering them if possible. He called himself enraged in Acts chapter 22. By the way, the, the conversion in this story of the Apostle Paul occurs three times in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 9, Acts 22, and Acts 26. Three times. So we see some of what happened when Paul was converted, not everything, and some of the details you can find in Acts 22 and 26 you can read on your own to kind of fill in the story. So here now Saul, Christian hater, which means he hates Jesus, still breathing threats, and murder, some translations say slaughter, against the disciples of the Lord. That means the disciples of the Lord here, the Lord is a reference to Jesus. The disciples, these are learners of Jesus, followers of Jesus, true believers of Jesus. The Christians, that's what it means. So he's breathing out threats and murder against the Christians who follow Jesus. He did his work all throughout Jerusalem to his satisfaction, ran out of Christians. Ran out of Christians in Judea. I need to go further. I need to go beyond. And Saul found out where many of them were fleeing in terms of their persecution. They were perse- uh, they were fleeing to one of the places they were fleeing to was the city of Damascus. Damascus in Syria, which for Paul in Jerusalem would be anywhere from 150 to almost 200 miles. The road that led from Jerusalem up to Damascus. It's almost straight up, almost parallel. Going up north, I remember when uh, we were in, we, had, we were privileged to go to Israel about five years ago, and we had the opportunity to ride on a ship shortly for a short period of time on the Sea of Galilee. I remember our tour guide saying, "Just right over there, you see that border, that horizon, those mountain ranges right there? That's Syria. That's where Damascus is. That was only sixty miles away from where we were in the Sea of Galilee. So that's the location we're talking about, and so." Uh, in verse 1, Saul goes to the high priest Caiaphas and others, verse 2, and asked the high priest for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus in Syria, which is very interesting that apparently the high priest, the Jewish high priest had authority over synagogues outside of their area and domain. And this apparently historically was extended to them by the Roman government allowed that the rulers and the high priest in particular to have authority over Jews and synagogues in other countries, and it included Syria. And so that's why the high priests actually have authority to do this. And they think this actually came from Julius Caesar himself, this far-reaching range of authority. So Saul goes to his leadership. He asks them for the letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus. Damascus, by the way, interesting, is considered the oldest city on planet Earth. 
It has been continually populated, we know, at least from the days... It existed in the days of Abraham. That's 4,000 years old, and it's even older than that. And it was a bustling city, a huge city, an important city. In Paul's day, it was filled with Jews and a Jewish community there. Hellenized Jews. And there were many synagogues that already existed there. And so there was a, a community of Jews where these persecuted Jewish Christians were fleeing. Maybe they had relatives there, and they knew that there was a bastion of places that they can hide and also maybe hide in the midst because it was such a large city and so many people. And Paul or Saul found out that many of the Christians were fleeing there, and indeed they were. And so Saul says, that that's not going to stop me. And so just think of the uh, single-mindedness of, of Saul's hatred towards Jews, the fact that he is not content that they've been wiped out, the Christians from Jerusalem and all of Judea and even the regions of Samaria. He is going to travel 150 to 200 miles to hunt down Christians in the popular city of Damascus and bring them back to put them on trial in Jerusalem and hopefully so that they can be executed. That's the extent to which he is going. That's why in 1 Timothy 1, as Paul's reflecting back, he called himself once a blasphemer, an aggressor, a persecutor of the church, and he even goes on to say the worst sinner there ever was. Because there... There's all kinds of horrible sin. You can be immoral. You can commit adultery. You can steal. You can be a drunkard. You can be... And on and on it goes. But one of the worst things you could possibly do is kill and murder Christians. Why? Because they directly, immediately, and literally belong to the body, Jesus Christ, who is the head. If you're a Christian, you're literally, spiritually, a part of Jesus Christ. He owns you. You're in His family. Your identity is his identity. His identity is your identity. We're going to see that in this passage. That is the worst conceivable sin. And Paul knew that in hindsight. That's what he was doing. So he's going to Damascus. He's got his entourage and his posse with him. We know that from the story. Surrounding him, providing whatever he needs for the long trip. They've got this long 150 to 2 mile trip on the road that they were taking. And so he's heading to Damascus with permission to arrest Jewish Christians so that if he found any belonging to the way, belonging to Christianity, Christianity was called the way early on, probably based on Jesus saying, I am the way. I am the way, the truth, and life. No one gets to the Father except through me. The Jews thought that was blasphemy. Jesus knew it was truth. And those who became Christians took on that identity. We are part of the way. The way, it's Jesus' way. There's only one way. It is His way. And it could very well be that unbelievers, and especially the Jews, who despised the Christians, turned that into a, a term of derision and called them the way. It was not a compliment. But it became their very identity. The, way, the same way when they first used the word Christian. Little Christs. Christian originally was a term of derision. A negative stigma. And now we use it as our identity. Right? Same thing with the way. So he found any, any of the believers, Christians, uh, the way, both men and women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Incredible hostility. That was his goal. That was his plan. He is single-minded. Great hostility. Go on to number 2, verses 3 through 9. Well, God has a different plan. And God is on the throne, and God reigns, and God is sovereign, and God is in charge. And so Saul is going to run head-on into a brick wall it's going to change his 
plans, and it's also going to change his destiny forever. That's verses 3 through 9. Let's go ahead and look at it. And that's the humbling. That's the humbling. If anybody... A prerequisite of becoming a Christian, of being born again and being saved and entering into heaven, one of the greatest prerequisites is to become humble. You can't become a Christian without humility. And the way that's manifest is identifying the fact that you are a sinner. You've got to understand. I had to understand. I am a sinner to the core. I do not deserve heaven. I'm separated from God because of my sin. And you know what? We can't discover that on our own. God has to reveal that to us. It has to be a supernatural work from heaven. And God does that through the power of His Holy Spirit. That's the Spirit's job, to reveal to each human heart and open their eyes so that they can see that they are rebels at heart. And we were born that way. Every human being was born a rebel separated from God. And God also uses the power of His Word, the truth in the Bible, and specifically the Gospel to open our eyes, to humble us, and, and give us a true assessment of ourselves. I am a rebel. I am a sinner. I'm separated from God. I'm an enemy of God. I hate God truly in my heart, the way He's revealed Himself in Scripture. And I can't know Him with that attitude, and I can't get to heaven with that status. So I need to be humbled. I need to be broken. I need to be brought to my knees. No, I need to be brought down to my face, prostrate. That's God's prerequisite, to be humbled. And one of the prietest men on planet Earth at the time was Saul. We know that from already his biographical data and his, his focus and his hatred for Christianity and, and Jesus. That Saul was a unique case in terms of his hostility and hatred towards Christianity for several reasons. Because he was such an ardent, zealous, trained Jew by the book in terms of Jewish religion in the days of the Pharisees. The idea of Christianity be, being true was the biggest deception, it was a satanic deception from Saul's point of view. For several reasons. This Jesus went around calling himself the Messiah. Yet that man died crucified on a tree. And Saul, the Old Testament scholar, knew Deuteronomy, where it said, He who is dies on a uh, he who is dies on a tree is cursed by God. If you got killed, if you were crucified on a tree. That meant you were rejected by God. You couldn't possibly be one of God's. And so Saul had heard this Jesus died on a tree, crucified on a tree. He was a cursed thing. There is no way this dead Jesus could be the Messiah. That is blasphemous. And so he thought it was blasphemy. That made him angry. Not only that, these Christians went around quoting his Old Testament to validate their religion. That also is blasphemy. Saul had great respect for the Old Testament, the way he understood it. This was God's word, God's holy word. How dare you tamper it, claim it as your own, and interpret passages in light of adapting it to your religion. That is the epitome of blasphemy. That enraged him all the more. And the final straw for Saul was that this blasphemer Jesus who was accursed was dead, and now the Christians, his followers, have the gall to worship him. And Saul, the Old Testament teacher, knew no one worships anyone except God alone. To do otherwise is idolatry, it is blasphemy. God is not a man. Saul knew that from the book of Numbers. So you can just see all these very explicit reasons from his Jewish understanding 
of why Christianity was the greatest of deceptions and it needed to be totally and utterly wiped out, snuffed out, and he's going to go to great extents in attempting to do that. So that is his goal. And so verse 3, and it came about that while he was journeying on this 150-mile road, he was approaching Damascus. So now he's almost there to the city, just on the outskirts of the city. And suddenly, boom, a light from heaven flashed around him. We know from Acts 22 that the time of the day is noon. And that means that the sun is in mid-sky. The sun is brilliant. The sun is bright. The sun is beaming down. And yet there's a greater light that bursts through heaven. And it is a light from heaven. It's amazing. And that's what Saul saw. Suddenly a light and it came suddenly and it was flashing. Flashing all around him. Flashing all around those who were traveling with him. It was instantaneous. It was quick. It was unexpected. It was alarming. It was shocking. Verse 4 says, and he fell to the ground. He was probably knocked to the ground. Later on in the book of Acts, it says the whole company of men were knocked to the ground. All of his men with him saw a light. All of his men who were with him heard a noise. And all of his men that were with him were thrown to the ground. And so Saul is thrown to the ground and he heard a voice. Now, all those who were with him heard a sound, a thunderous sound, an authoritative sound coming from heaven, but nobody with Saul uh, interpreted it and understood what it meant. They, they didn't know that it was a voice from heaven. They didn't hear the interpretation as Jesus literally is speaking from heaven to Saul, confronting him. And all that his friends around him, all they could hear was just a noise, a, a thunderous, cacophonous, deafening noise with, without interpretation. No doubt it frightened them because it says all of his companions stood around speechless. In utter awe, they didn't know what to think. They couldn't make anything of it. It needed to be interpreted. They were not going to get it interpreted for them. But Saul was. So he sees this sudden light from heaven. He falls to the ground. He hears this voice. It is an intelligent voice speaking from heaven. That's interesting. Saying to him, articulating to him in a language that he can understand, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So Saul could hear this voice, it was distinct, and it made sense. It was in his language. Unlike his friends who, they just heard a noise and they didn't know what the, the voice was saying. And it's emphatic, Saul, Saul. Jesus did that in the Gospels. Anytime he wanted to be emphatic with somebody, and usually it was when he was rebuking someone. Kind of like when my mom used to say my name, my name twice, or five times, to be emphatic. And Jesus did that to Martha, 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 in, in John, Martha, Martha, or in the gospel. That was a rebuke. Simon, Simon, he would say to Peter when Peter was being short-sighted or sinful. Same thing here. Saul, Saul, and he's very personal. It's not, hey, you guys. It's Saul. Saul, I know who you are. So that would be piercing, that would be penetrating, that would be convicting Saul believed in God. He believed the wrong thing about God. He knew this voice was coming from heaven. He knew this was God. Why are you persecuting me? By the way, a voice from heaven. We know this is Jesus because in verse 5 it says, And Saul said, Who art thou, Lord? Who are you, Lord? Who are you, God? Identify yourself. That's what Moses said to God. What is your name? God responds. He said, I am Jesus. Can you imagine how alarming 
that had to be for Saul? Because his mission was to eliminate the name of Jesus, the greatest of all blasphemers in the history of the world. And yet now Jesus is confirming, actually, Saul, everything that you resisted, everything that you thought was a lie, everything that you thought was blasphemy and untrue is true about me. I am the Messiah. And you and your people and your leaders, you crucified the Savior you were looking for from your own scriptures. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I am Jesus. Acts 22 says, it, says, it gives the fuller thing of what Jesus said. It said, I am Jesus the Nazarene. Oh, how much more offensive could that be? That was another reason that Paul and his leadership despised Christianity because their leader was from Nazareth. Nothing good can come from Nazareth. The Jerusalem Jews were incredibly arrogant. They were elitist. And the leadership to be pure had to come from the ranks of Jerusalem. That's why Saul was sent to Jerusalem to be trained by the purists in Jerusalem. You can't have a real prophet, and you can't have a Messiah coming out of Nazarene of all places. And Jesus says, Saul, Saul, and he says, I am Jesus the Nazarene. And Jesus gets personal. He says, whom you, you are persecuting, present tense. That also had to be alarming because who had Paul or Saul been persecuting up to this time? Well, let's see. He's arresting no-name Christians, insignificant no-name Christians, the masses, men and women, arresting them, throwing them into prison, voting for their death. And why would Jesus say that you're persecuting me? This is a blessed truth. Because every Christian belongs to Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, you're in the family of God. If you're a Christian, Jesus is your elder brother. If you're a Christian, you're a part of the body of Christ. You are a member of the body. He is the head of your body. He is literally intimately, spiritually, eternally, intimately connected to you and you to Him. That is a precious truth of Christianity. It's true. That is comforting. Are you going through hard times right now in your life? Are you suffering anything? Is there the weight of the world on your shoulders? Are you... Whatever it is, it also burdens Jesus Christ. He knows you. He's in your family. He loves you. He is a part of you. He knows everything that's going on in your life. And if someone is persecuting you, treating you bad, whatever, they are doing it to Christ Himself. Jesus feels all of it on behalf of His people. That is a distinctive of Christianity. So, so why are you persecuting me? Persecuting me. By the way, it's interesting in verse 4, uh, it said, he, Saul heard him in a voice. Saul heard him speak a language. Well, what language does God speak? Well, English, of course. No. It's kind of interesting. Actually, later on in his story in Acts 22 or uh, 26, he actually tells us the language. He said, I heard a voice that spoke in Hebrew or Jewish Aramaic. That's kind of interesting. So God speaks Hebrew. Well, yeah, when he's talking to Hebrew people. Did you know that God knows all languages? And if God was going to talk to me, he'd probably speak in English. Because my Spanish, not so very, very good. But just a very personal way that he relates to, to Saul. Great confrontation. So this is the great confrontation. This is where Saul is humbled. Um, I am Jesus. And he said... Uh, 
verse 6. Then Jesus just gives them three simple commands. Get up. That's practical. He's only, get up. Enter the city, that's Damascus, that he was headed to, and wait. Those are his three commands. And you know what? Saul complies. This is where Saul began to have a change of heart. Immediate obedience. Like God telling Abraham, go, and he goes. Or in just a second, he's going to tell Ananias, Ananias, do this, and eventually, Ananias, okay, I'm going to do that. And here with Saul, who now becomes Paul, there's an immediate transformation. It is spiritual, it's supernatural, it's instantaneous. It's of the heart. It's a result of humbling and divine revelation about who Jesus really is. And you can see the evidence now of a new person, a change, a new creation. Will he obey his new Lord and Master, the Lord Jesus Christ? Get up, go, wait. That's exactly what Saul does. Verse 7, the men who traveled with Saul, they stood speechless. They were in awe about what was going on. They couldn't interpret it. They were hearing the voice. They saw the light, but they didn't see any person. Later on, it says that they heard the voice of the sound, but they couldn't interpret what was said. God is selective in interpreting his revelation. is directly meant for Saul. Verse 8, and Saul got up from the ground in obedience. And though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. Saul became blind. God made Saul blind. God has done those kind of things throughout history on select occasions. Do you remember when God made John the Baptist's father deaf instantaneously? He did. And God makes other people blind. The Old Testament says you, no man could look on God's glory and live. And here the glory of Jesus Christ himself is unveiled with a blinding heavenly light from heaven. And actually Saul's life is spared. He should have died. But God was going to use him. But he does go blind. So he gets up from the ground, verse 8, and though his eyes were open... He could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him to Damascus. Isn't that amazing? So what, what humbling. He, he is breathing threats. He uh, is vicious. He is in charge. He is deliberate. He's got his posse. He's going on a mission. And now he's being led like a little baby, totally dependent upon others. And thus begins the walk of faith for Saul, who becomes Paul. So they made it to the city of Damascus. They found a place for him to go in the house of a man named Judas, apparently a Jewish man. Judas was a common name and found respite there. Where Verse 9 says, Saul was there for three days without sight, totally blind, neither ate nor drank. He totally fasted. And it was probably as a result of being shaken and overwhelmed by the experience that he just had of being blinded from the Christ of glory from heaven. And his entire world up to that point had been turned upside down. Let's go on to verse 10, the help. 10 through 16. Now, there was a certain disciple at Damascus in the city there, a, a devout man, a God seeker. His name is Ananias. He was probably, um, Damascus very well could have been his home and attended the synagogue there. And the Lord appears to him in a vision, this man named Ananias, and says, Ananias. And Ananias responds and says, Behold, I am here, Lord. So Ananias knows that God is talking to him. By the way, these appearances of Jesus, of, of appearing to Saul in a vision from heaven directly with an audible voice, that doesn't happen frequently in history. This is very rare. 
Very rarely did God do that. As a matter of fact, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 says, God doesn't really do this anymore. Now that He has given us the full revelation of His Scripture in the New Testament, God speaks through His Word and through His Spirit. He's not going around in visions and dreams anymore like He did with the apostles here. Scripture clearly says that. So this is rare. This is not normative. I've been a Christian 30 years. I've never had a vision from heaven. I don't expect to while I'm here on earth. I've got everything I need in the Bible. And I dare say I've never met a true Christian who has had a vision from heaven like this. I've met some who said they did. That requires investigation. But anyway. So this is unique. It happened in apostolic times. So the Lord Jesus appears to Ananias in a vision. And he says, Ananias, and he says, Behold, I am here, Lord, I'm at your service. Verse 11, and the Lord, this is Jesus talking to him, Arise, Ananias, go to the street called Straight. This was a massive thoroughfare in the city of Damascus. Do you know what? That street is still there today. Isn't that amazing? Critics of the Bible. Oh, the Bible's mythology. It's not historical. No, it, it is historical. Here is a city that it still exists by name today. Syria is in the news every single day, today. Damascus, still one of the most well-known cities on planet Earth, today. This road, mentioned 2,000 years ago, still exists. It's amazing. In detail, the Bible is historical. The street called Straight, famous street. And as you go on that street, inquire at the house of a man named Judas. A man from Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he's there and he's praying. So Saul is now praying. And for the first time in his life, he's not praying to a false god. He is praying to Jesus himself. Isn't that awesome? He is praying. Lo and behold, he is praying, is what it says. That's emphatic. Take note. This man is in prayer. Something's happening in his life. It is significant. Go to him, verse 12. And he gives his name as Saul of Tarsus. For Ananias, that scared him. He knew of Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus had a reputation. Saul of Tarsus among the Christian community probably had like a, a wanted sign and picture in the post office. Saul of Tarsus, Christian killer, look out. And Saul's reputation had gone before him. He'd been there three days. No doubt the word got out. And Christians had heard, Saul of Tarsus, the Christian killer, is in town. Ananias caught wind of that. He is fearful. He's afraid. You want me to go to Saul of Tarsus, the Christian killer? Are you kidding? Verse 12, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias. He's seen you in a vision. I, sh I showed Saul in a vision of you, Ananias, and what you look like. Wow, thanks, Jesus. I want you to go into Saul of Tarsus, the Christian killer, and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. He's blind. Oh, that's comforting, okay? He won't recognize me. He's blind. Verse 13, But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints in Jerusalem. The Christian killer. By the way, this is one of the first times that Christians are called saints. Verse 13. Saint means holy one. Set apart. If you are a Christian, you are a saint. Verse 14. Here, he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call upon thy name. God, he's, he's a killer. He's a Christian killer. So there is hesitation. There is fear on the part of Ananias. God allows that. God's in a discussion. God wants to comfort Ananias and encourage him. Verse 15, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. I am in charge. I am Jesus. I am sovereign. Plans have changed. I own him. He will now serve me. 
He's an instrument of mine. He will bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. Simply awesome. Saul gets saved. The first thing he does, according to a later chapter in the book of Acts, is he starts preaching the gospel immediately in Damascus, the city where he's at. And then he goes, he goes on and he does this very thing and preaches to the Jews. And we see that all throughout his ministry, fulfilling this very mission that God had given him. And also it says he will preach to kings, and he did. At least Herod he got to preach to, and probably Caesar in his day when he said, I appeal to Caesar, the king of Rome, the emperor. Verse 16, for I will show him, get this, what irony. I'm going to show Saul how much he must suffer for my name's sake. What did Saul do for a living? He made Christians suffer to the death. And now you know what? I'm going to call him, and that's going to be his lot as a Christian. He's going to suffer wherever he goes. And Saul did. Paul did. And he did. He suffered to the death when finally the emperor had his head chopped off in about 67 A.D. Ananias complies, Ananias responds, Ananias obeys, Ananias overcomes his fear with the encouragement of the Lord in verse 17 to 18 after the hostility, the humbling, and the help from Ananias. Number four, the healing. It's physical healing and also spiritual healing. God heals soul, uh, Saul's soul with salvation. He heals his eyes by allowing him to see. Saul is filled with the Spirit, 17 and 18. So Ananias departs, does what the Lord said, entered the house of Judas, on Straight Street and found Saul. He greeted him as brother, which is encouraging. How comforting. One of the first voices maybe that Saul ever hears from a fellow believer and calls him brother. You're no longer a terrorist. Paul, that's what Paul was. He was a terrorist. Did you know that God's gospel can change the heart even of a terrorist and save him? Ananias departed into the house, and after laying his hands, he goes up to Saul. He lays his hands on Saul. He calls him brother, brother Saul. The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And no doubt, Saul heard the fullness of the gospel. Jesus already began the gospel by saying, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And up to this point, Saul had heard all the complete truth about the Lord Jesus Christ, which was required to be saved. And now Ananias lays hands on him. And the Spirit of God is going to begin living in Saul at this time. And verse 18 says, it's a miraculous. And immediately there fell from Saul's eyes something like scales. Scales. Uh, this word is only used here in the New Testament. These scales. And it was a literal scale. It wasn't a spiritual scale. They were literal scales. In the Greek Septuagint, this word is used in Leviticus 11, speaking of fish with scales. And that's what Saul had on his eyes. And they just, boop, popped off. God did that. It was miraculous. It was supernatural. They popped off, and as a result, he was able to gain his sight. He could see now. He could literally see with his eyes. And for the first time in his life, he could also see spiritually because now he knows Jesus Christ for who he truly is. He is not some false messiah who was a blasphemer to be stamped out and his disciples killed. He is the true Messiah, God incarnate, who is to be worshipped and glorified and now which he will serve all of his days. Saul is a new man. It's amazing what Saul gave up to become a follower of Christ. He, gave up, he probably gave up his family relationships at this point. He gave up his status 
in the Sanhedrin. He probably gave up all of his friendships among those influential high priests in Jewish leadership, no doubt. Gave up his history, his heritage, his zeal as a Jew, as a Pharisee. He gave it all up, but he gained even more by salvation in Christ. Total forgiveness of sin and eternal inheritance with Christ, being in the family of God. What a blessing. Well, there are some unique things that God did here that aren't replicated or even repeated today, like coming in visions to Saul, putting scales on people's eyes and making them pop off, coming in a vision to Ananias. But there are miracles that God is still doing. And again, the greatest miracle of all that God is still doing is the miracle of salvation. When a sinner hears the gospel about Jesus Christ, of who he is, the God-man who lived the perfect life, who came for the purpose of dying on the cross to be a substitute for sinners, where on that cross he would absorb the wrath of Almighty God the Father as a substitute for sinners. And because he was God, he could absorb all the wrath that God required of every sinner that would repent. And, and then Jesus died. He knew he would die. He was born to die. He came to die. He's in the grave three days, rose again from the dead, predicted in the Old Testament Scriptures. Jesus ascended back into heaven where he's been for all eternity, where he's with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And today Jesus Christ reigns in heaven over all eternity with the Father and the Spirit and is calling sinners to himself through the gospel. And every single day when a sinner understands that and they go to God and they cry out for forgiveness and recognize that they're a sinner and they can't save themselves and they recognize Jesus as Savior and Lord, God does a miracle. He saves that sinner. And that sinner becomes a saint. That's one of the many, many truths that we can still just glean from this amazing historical truth about Saul, the Christian killer, who becomes Paul, potentially the greatest saint, pastor, and missionary the church has ever known. In light of those great truths, let me close our time together in prayer. We have a transition now. Father, we thank you for our time together. We thank you for this story uh, of Saul. We thank you for the power of the gospel that it could penetrate the heart of a stiff-necked sinner like Saul. And we thank you that this gospel is just as powerful today. God, empower us to be courageous, to plant the seeds of the gospel wherever we go. And we do pray for those that we know that don't know you. You might keep working on their hearts that they might be saved. We thank you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.